This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore the intersection of religion and foreign policy. When we look at efforts that the State Department has undertaken to engage with religious communities around the world, we speak with Amy Lillis, former acting special representative for religion and global affairs at the State Department. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. In 2001, Lillis was a sophomore in college studying abroad in India when the events of 9-11 unfolded. Later, she did a summer internship with the State Department and has spent her career after college as a diplomat, serving as a human rights officer in Lagos, Nigeria, Istanbul, Turkey, and Islamabad, Pakistan. Her work in the Foreign Service included promoting and protecting religious freedom in places like Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Amy Lillis speaks to us from Washington, D.C., where she's preparing for further work abroad. Amy Lillis, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, I think our listeners would be interested to find out what it is that the State Department is doing having an office dedicated to religious issues. I mean, would you tell us a bit about the work of the Office of Religion and Global Affairs? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it is a unique office, actually. There, it's the first office of its kind established in any Ministry of Foreign Affairs around the world, and it is unique, especially in the United States, where we have not traditionally engaged strongly with religious organizations and, and actors. And the office was created in 2013, so it's a rather young office, now about four years old, um, intended to do three things to support foreign policy priorities. Uh, specifically advise the Department of State leadership on policy matters as they relate to religion. We support our colleagues at missions, posts, and embassies abroad, and in bureaus here in the Department of State in assessing religious dynamics, how to engage with religious actors. And we also serve as a point of entry for those who want to engage the State State Department on matters related to religion and global affairs, whether these are um, religious or non-religious actors. So basically, our our office really exists to add value and amplify the work of addressing the nexus of religion and U.S. foreign policy. And that's not a new concept. It's something that academics have been focused on for quite a while. And in fact, in 2006, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright also published a book entitled The Mighty and the Almighty, in which she really addressed this topic and uh, did note that she has offices dedicated to things like arms control and nuclear nonproliferation and economic expertise. But there was no office available for her to call on where there was a depth of knowledge and expertise for how to integrate religious principles into our efforts in diplomacy. This is not a new topic of engaging, uh, of looking at religious dynamics and outreach on 
policy priorities, especially domestic policy priorities. So the um, the Bush administration in 2001 uh, established in the White House an Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, and as well as Center for Faith Centers for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives in other federal agencies to really strengthen and expand the capacity to engage with with religious communities because they really have the grassroots knowledge of what's going on in 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 the communities and can inform policymakers, uh, particularly in providing social services. You mentioned that uh, that your office serves as a point of entry uh, for folks that are wanting to engage with the State Department, but using the subject of religion as sort of an entry point. Could you give us a, a concrete example of what that might look like? One area that we often are uh, asked about, and this is a roundabout way to respond to your, your question here, is about religious freedom. Because there are offices, there's another office in the Department of State focused on international religious freedom, and it's an advocacy office mandated by, um, by Congress back in 1998 to focus on promoting religious freedom. And I'd worked in this office um, earlier, working on regions like Syria and Iraq and Iran. Um, now, when, and when a religious organization or entity has a concern related to religious freedom, that's a natural entry point for them to go to that office. But when it's, uh, an off, when it's a religious entity that wants to um, work with the Department of State on how best to provide services, humanitarian assistance in a, disaster, in a natural disaster like Haiti, how do they get their equipment there? A lot of the logistics that require specific consular affairs expertise, we then are the entry point for those entities who might be, um, would like to know how to uh, take those next steps or uh, religious groups that have, have missionaries working abroad and uh, have consular affairs concerns there that relate to visa issues. We can make sure they're connected. But then in the United States, there are religious organizations um, and religiously affiliated communities that have foreign policy interests. They don't know what door to knock on. They may want to be able to support uh, countering trafficking and persons efforts in uh, West Africa, but they don't know exactly who to go to, and so we serve as that portal for them. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you, you're working both domestically and on foreign shores as a conduit for for those that are wanting to engage in some form of, of diplomatic question, but where, re, where religion might be an entry point or a focus to the possibility of that engagement. Have I heard that correctly? That's absolutely the case, especially because religious communities are transnational in nature. And so their communities don't end at the border, whether it's the United States border or if we're looking at communities in Central and South Central Asia. And uh, there's often, there are often cognate relationships and being able to help facilitate focusing on important foreign policy objectives that also are priorities for these communities, whether it's health or refugees, um, uh, combating trafficking of persons, as I'd mentioned before, we're here as a conduit to help facilitate that. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Amy Lillis. She's Acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. Her office was founded in 2013 and is part of a strategic engagement around religious literacy issues to aid the diplomatic efforts at home and abroad. 
given the fact that America has a concept constitutionally of the separation of church and state, I think a lot of our listeners might be asking, how is it even possible that we would have an office in the government, particularly in the State Department, called the Office of Religion and Global Affairs? How does that work constitutionally? That's that's a really good question, and it's one that we often receive also from our colleagues, other foreign service officers such as myself, and those who also work with the Department of State. It's often been perceived as an impediment for foreign service officers to work with religious entities because they don't really think about or are aware of the full uh, capacity that the Constitution does permit us. So you're referring to specifically the Establishment Clause, the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, in which Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And uh, this just requ- this requires that we, um, as mem- part of the United States government, has to be neutral. We can't preference a religion, and we can't be, we have to be neutral between different religious beliefs, they're not preferencing, but also between belief and non-belief. And so what we're looking at are secular objectives, and that's what we have to make sure that any of our initiatives are tied to, uh, ensuring that um, the outcome that is achieved is intended for a broader foreign policy good that doesn't privilege or benefit exclusively one religious community or with the intent to benefit one religious community. So we, we often find that we can work with we can work and help train and build the capacity of diplomats to understand that there are lines that we do have to abide by and making sure that we remain neutral, but that we do have um, the capacity to engage with religious with religious communities and actors. In fact, if we weren't, we'd be really missing a huge chunk of the potential for influencers. Um, one of the principles that our office works with in our work is the idea that that religious communities and religious actors are motivators for social change in either direction. And we can't ignore that reality in our work. Um, but as you can imagine, we also have a strong relationship then with our the State Department's legal advisors to make sure that we're staying within the bounds of the First Amendment. Well, you, you've touched on this a little bit already, but I'd be fascinated to know more about how your office, the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, interfaces and aids other branches of the U.S. government. And in particular, um, when we're talking about diplomatic efforts, even with potentially hostile nations, sort of how does the Office of Religion and Global Affairs work in that environment? Well, we are, as I mentioned earlier, we're part of this network of federal agencies that focuses on that focuses on how to engage religious leaders. And in fact, we were created in 2013, the same year that the White House released the National Strategy on Religious Leader and Faith Community Engagement, which wasn't just targeting the State Department, but looking at Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, and other agencies, and how they um, strategically involve and engage and understand how to engage. I think that's a key component, too, is this religious literacy, um, a term that we use here often, and understanding not just about the religion, but about how to speak to religious communities in ways that will help us pursue the same goals. Um, So we collaborate with this network on building common capacity, uh, which helps then certainly in being able to be on the same page when we look at uh, conflict situations or opportunities. And uh, we also um, we also help to inform one another of the the uh, sort of the pulse of how different entities, how different religious communities 
globally and domestically are feeling about certain foreign policy objectives that we can be on the same page. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Amy Lillis. She is acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. The office was created in 2013 and is a strategic engagement in religious literacy to help the diplomatic efforts of the United States at home and abroad. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. Her office was created in 2013 as a strategic engagement to promote religious literacy uh, to help diplomatic efforts for the United States both at home and abroad. So, as a diplomat, you've, you've talked about this, this notion of neutrality when you're dealing with religious issues. And I'm really interested in the balance of, that you have to strike to get that neutrality there. I mean, you can't seem like you're representing a religious position, and at the same time, you need to be open to those for whom religious positions are completely central to their identity. Uh, that must be a tricky balance to maintain. It is, and this is why we as an office have been developed to help build the capacity of our colleagues to focus on this. At the same time, you know, part of our jobs as diplomats is to really help promote awareness of the United States pluralism, which is one of our strengths, the diversity, and talk about the reality of the, um, of the lives of religious communities lived in the United States and how they collaborate with counterparts abroad, Um, whether it's the Muslim communities in the United States who have tremendous humanitarian assistance organizations that focus on supporting uh, the needs of Syrian refugees and of, um, but also of Haitians after the the earthquake and disaster there. Uh, And telling those stories to help to, to make clear that we don't necessarily possess a bias in our own in our foreign policy approach. Um, we also have to speak about, we have to be cognizant and understand the change of demographics globally, certainly, which is part of the job that our, what our office focuses on, but also domestically, how we can speak to represent all Americans. Um, we have to be able to reach back into uh, the growing population of nuns, for example, uh, those who uh, aren't affiliated with uh, with any religion in the United States, but who may themselves have, have religious inclinations? How can we speak and represent those American citizens as well as the um, variety of Muslim communities and Jewish communities and pro- mainline Protestants and evangelical communities um, abroad? Well, and, and you've just raised such a huge issue, the, the American experience of religious pluralism over against what is oftentimes, I guess, maybe a misperception of monocultural religion in many of these nations. And I'm, I'm wondering about the translation. I mean, is, is it ever difficult to try and explain uh, the plurality 
uh, in a monocultural context um, because and and both both the plurality and the neutrality I think in some ways might be seen as a threat to a monocultural religious context but I'm, I'm that's just my guess I'd be very interested in your experience of that since you've actually been in the field having these conversations you know it, it really um, you, you've touched on something that is a common conversation that we have with counterparts both our own colleagues back in missions and embassies abroad um, to talk, how do we talk about pluralism in an environment where a there's limited diversity and so is this a how do we promote this as a concept um, when it's hard to conceptualize uh, for those who have very limited exposure to uh, those who are not of the same religion or same faith or same background and then how do we do that in a way that doesn't seem to preference uh, one religion over another and so I, I think of my time in Pakistan where uh, I was I lived on the street that had a neighborhood of Christian sweepers. They were the the, um, the Christian community in Islamabad was largely, if not in the professional realm, they were and and very well educated. They were um, also in the poorest of the poor, uh, and they had taken on traditionally the role of of street cleaning or picking up trash. And the person who would come and pick up the trash from our home every day was was Christian who'd lived in this this what would arguably call, be called a slum down the street. Um, and yet there was little interest from in talking with some of the Muslim leaders uh, who were religious leaders in Pakistan to help support them and improve their condition because they were perceived to be connected to the West and therefore privileged. And in that sense, also not Pakistani because of this concept of identity that um, a non inclusive concept of identity that had been adopted over the years and incorporated. So um, there's, there's a need then to help facilitate the capacity to work on common projects then, rather than trying to encourage um, a broader sense of pluralism, instead talk about you know, that, that sort of empty, falls in deaf ears when there's no understanding of why that would be of importance and actually seems to, to some threaten this unified sense of identity against the other. Instead, looking at the benefits of diversity and actually acting on those. How do you demonstrate the strength of having this pluralistic society to address common challenges? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Amy Lillis. She's Acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. The office was founded in 2013 and is a strategic attempt to engage in religious literacy as a way of aiding United States diplomatic efforts at home and abroad. If I'm hearing you correctly, you move away from the, the religious question and then you find something like that is a common problem that is shared by multiple communities and you instead begin discussions of that problem? Or am I mishearing what you're saying? That's absolutely it. So looking at maybe there's a common need for um, access, you know, water accessibility that affects both the Christian slums, but also their wealthier neighborhood neighbors. And how do they talk about um, collaboratively to means of developing that access? Uh, a larger scale project that we've been working on that is somewhat like the, um, that, that demonstrates this, is uh, a project that we developed to look at global health challenge of antimicrobial resistance. And one of the 
uh, the, the primary counterpart that we worked with was Georgetown University and the Caritas Internationalis and the Holy See, um, because the Catholic uh, healthcare network is so broad and expansive. Um, and we worked with them in talking. We wanted to bring faith-based organizations to the table um, around this global issue, where often they are the last ones, the ones that receive the the marching orders from the ministries of the ministries of health um, to the implementers, the faith-based organizations, on what kind of national plan we're going to have to address this problem. Um, how do we bring elevate those voices earlier in the decision-making stage because they have grassroots knowledge of what's going on? Um, we wanted to be sure that those that that discussion um, included also voices from other religious organizations and communities because it's. The health issue doesn't doesn't stop at the you know at the the Christian sweepers um, neighborhood. It extends into that, and then it also extends out of that. And so, if you have this common health challenge, and you have different people, different organizations that have different access capacity um, to access different regions of a country or a neighborhood where it's affecting it. Let's say Ebola, and in Liberia. While the Catholic Church had tremendous access, there were some regions immediately across the border um, where it was necessary to work with Muslim healthcare providers. And if they didn't already have that conversation, that that connection, talking about um, other health challenges or other needs, uh, they wouldn't be able to prevent that further spread. If you're just so joining, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, so in, me- in that case, really tackling a common challenge. So, Amy, my understanding is that you were studying abroad on September 11th, 2001, when the United States was attacked and the World Trade Center was brought to the ground. And I'm just curious if you're willing to speak about it. What was it like to view that event from a foreign context? It was the evening in in New Delhi, and we were um, a group of students staying at a YWCA watching this happen on TV. And... We were also sharing the space with a group of students from New York University who were being directly impacted. I mean, their families were largely from the area. And it was devastating. It was ground-shaking. It was foundation-shaking. And we as a group had no idea how to think about this, how to think through this, how how to talk with our families back in the United States about it. They were encountering and experiencing what what was understandably perceived as a direct threat, whether, as my family in Nebraska, was in Nebraska, where there are near um, some Air Force bases, there was such uncertainty, and we were so far away, so we could neither provide comfort nor understanding in that circumstance, and we were trying, we were struggling also with what was going to happen next. The next day, we continued with our program. The professors, um, I like to joke that they're, they were math professors who were leading the program, and they didn't quite um, glom on to the, the, uh, the need for baby pausing and talking about this. Instead, we're going to go ahead and do business as usual and go on to the classes that we needed to. So the next day, we started our classes, and we were studying Mughal history. And the first class was in a mosque, and the instructor was an imam who was talking to us. And the instructor stopped, did, did not even enter into the discussion about Mughal history, understandably, but listened and expressed such empathy. Um, and that was my first encounter with an imam, ever. I had never 
um, met a religious leader from the Muslim faith growing up where I uh, where I did in Nebraska, and um, and this was a defining moment in an encounter where I felt that there was trust and it built the capacity to talk with um, with this imam uh, frankly uh, and ignorantly uh, about his religion and beliefs, his personal religion, how he lived that. And it was something that I could then bring back to my family later after the semester ended and, and share at a very personal level that I found to be incredibly useful. And that has really been a formative experience for me in thinking about how we work as diplomats and how critical that encounter and that engagement and that trust building is. And one of the reasons that this office is so important if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Amy Lillis. She is Acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. The Office of Religion and Global Affairs was founded in 2013 as a strategic engagement in religious literacy to aid the diplomatic efforts of the United States at home and abroad. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. The office was founded in 2013 as a strategic engagement in religious literacy to aid United States diplomatic efforts at home and abroad. In 2001, Lillis was a sophomore in college studying abroad in India when the events of 9-11 unfolded. At that moment when you were shaken to your core and your classmates were shaken to the, to the core, uh, I come from a seminary background, and I will say that the math professors had what we would call a bad pastoral response to that moment. <laughs> but it sounds like the imam had a good pastoral response. And what I heard you saying was instead of launching into an explanation, he listened and he, he was willing to answer questions and engage at the level of pain. And, and then I heard you flip that and say that that has been an important informative touchstone for the diplomatic work that you've later spent your life doing. And is it fair then to say that you would, you would characterize an important part of the diplomatic work that you and your colleagues are doing around the practices of listening and being responsive to issues and pain that come about in the process of that listening? Absolutely. That's critical. Relationships are, are really the bread and butter of our, of our work um, and why we need to build that capacity further. Um, and it's actually really exciting to be on what might be considered a cutting edge of the diplomatic world um, for building, being able to build relationships with religious communities and actors. It's a new tool set. It's a new skill set. Um, well, it's, it's an old skill set, actually, being applied to a new community um, because, as you said, the Relationships are the bread and butter. Well, you, you mentioned that you were in New Delhi and that you were studying in India. My question is, how long were you there uh, after September 11th, and what was it like to come back to America after that? <laughs> it was, uh, I was there for three more months afterward uh, into the, then the Afghan war at the beginning of that. 
which of course you can imagine drove my mother uh, crazy with worry because India is far closer to Afghanistan than Nebraska is. Um, but when I returned, I remember just being shocked at the increase in, in security and the securitization, the immediate physical response was to put up barriers. And um, I remember also being hesitant to show the bottoms of my feet to uh, people with, with metal detector wands uh, as I was going through the, the security of the airports because if, it, if there was anything that you learned in India as, an, as a young uh, student, it was never to show the bottom of your feet to people. And it was just the, these small things that, that struck me as being um, awkward because it was not, I had not practiced that before and not experienced that before being in India because things were very, it was a very different world. And it was just that kind of introduction to the change the, and the uncertainty and fear that um, I, I felt I came back to. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. The office was founded in 2013 as a strategic engagement in religious literacy uh, to aid the State Department in its diplomatic efforts at home and abroad. You have also been on the ground, and most recently that has been in Nigeria. And uh, first of all, I'd love if you would give our listeners some background on the situation that has been unfolding in that country recently. Absolutely. Um, I I served in Nigeria 10 years ago now um, and had the, the good fortune to go back to Nigeria three times in the last year and a half. And the Nigeria is, is... is a complex and populous and vibrant place, and it was really a pleasure to go back and see that and, and that vibrancy. Um, it's also a place that really suffers from tremendous poverty, in part because of um, because of corruption. And it's a country that where, on average, uh, the average citizen earns six dollars a day. I mean, that's around two a little over two thousand dollars a year income. And uh, but the the capacity, and we've seen this from studies of, of the impact of corruption, uh, the capacity would be actually to earn, the, of, of, not the capacity, but the citizens would actually be earning and have in their pocket about $1,000 more every year if there were a reduction in corruption. Not a, a clean slate, but to a, a, just a slightly less level. And we see now um, throughout, especially in the middle belt of, of Nigeria, um, continued uh, conflicts between herders and uh, settlers, so people who farm the land and those who herd and are more nomadic. Um, we see Boko Haram in the north, which is a relatively new um, development. Boko Haram did not exist as a, a threat when I was there in 2005, although they had I think um, attacked first had carried out some attacks in 2002. Um, a lot of this is a manifestation of uh, a lack of economic operation uh, opportunities and and famine in the north um, that really develops a, a sense of alienation from the government. And we see also that that when um, 
that when there's such alienation and when people have experience with corruption, they're more likely to support um, violent extremism. They're more likely to step away from seeing the state as the, the, um, the provider and look for other providers, entities, possibly like Boko Haram. Um, and so looking at corruption as a, an underlying issue uh, that we as uh, policymakers and implementers should consider to combat violent extremism and look at addressing conflict seems like a smart idea. I'm curious because you work for an office of religion and global affairs. How can religion help with those corruption moments where you've got billions of dollars at the highest levels and it goes all the way down institutionally in society to the smallest human interactions? How does religion or focusing on religion help? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting question, actually, because one of the things that we um, have been working with Nigeria on is this national action plan that involves um, that involves civil society and religious communities in um, and religious leaders, especially in Nigeria, are, have such a loud and and commanding and authoritative voice um, with both moral authority but also um, political authority. Uh, there's a credibility that they possess and that. Um, and others here and really abide by in Nigeria. Uh, in talking with religious leaders in Nigeria and other parts of West Africa about what key priorities were for their, for their communities, for their congregations and, and communities, they said that combating corruption was in the top three uh, because it prevented them from being able to develop and be able to offer opportunities and the welfare of their communities were at stake. So we decided we'd start this um, we'd continue the discussion with both Muslim and Christian leaders in first Lagos, Nigeria, and then up in Kano, the northern part of Nigeria, um, because this is corruption is not a problem that affects only one region of Nigeria. If anything, it's a unifying challenge, um, both between religions but also between regions in Nigeria. And uh, in talking with them, we wanted to learn what they saw would be the best method for addressing this challenge that they, con- they said was one of their top priorities. And they said it was a- one of their top priorities as religious leaders because they have the capacity to provide moral guidance, but also because this is not a topic that should be owned by any political leader or political party. Instead, it's something that pertains to all citizens, and they could speak for and to and educate all citizens. And they, in doing so, they, um, the workshops initially that we, we, we held in early 2016, in fact, we held the first one in Lagos um, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day to really highlight the, the role that religious leaders have in promoting social change. Because to them, and this comes straight from the mouths of Christian and Muslim leaders in Nigeria, uh, what need, was needed was a sea change, a culture change in Nigeria that started from the top that then could influence, that started from the bottom that then could influence the top. And so they decided to look at what they could do specifically to address these, this challenge. Um, they have loud voices. They could raise their voices and highlight specific individuals that they, that, um, and practices that were corrupt. But they could also empower their community to do the same at the person-to-person level, the dash level. And uh, one of the, they developed a charter for their, their the religious leaders' anti-corruption committee, is what is called ARLAC, um, developed a charter that guided their, their approach. 
and identified also the specific areas that they felt as religious leaders were most pertinent to them and their role, uh, education and health and the well-being of their communities. And so that's the area that they decided they wanted to focus their efforts on. Um, and they worked then with a civil society organization that focuses specifically on um, building capacity to hold political leaders and hold the budget makers accountable um, to build a website where people could report when they paid a dash, uh, where it was, when it was, and they could choose to report it formally to the police and the police were involved in, um, in condoning and supporting the development of this website, or they could just have it on the record. And so the, the total amount of dash that was paid, so the money that was taken out of the pockets of average citizens uh, could be totaled up. And over the course of a week or a month, the religious leaders then could take this on and go to the head of, let's say, the traffic police um, department and say, my community members in this region have paid this amount of money in dash. What's going on? What are you doing to correct this, this challenge? Uh, and it really is a unique um, space in civil society that um, we're helping develop capacity with. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. Her office was created in 2013 as a strategic engagement to promote religious literacy uh, to help diplomatic efforts for the United States both at home and abroad. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. Her office was created in 2013 as a strategic engagement to promote religious literacy uh, to help diplomatic efforts for the United States both at home and abroad. So, Amy, my understanding is that you were studying abroad on September 11th, 2001, when the United States was attacked and the World Trade Center was brought to the ground. And I'm just curious if you're willing to speak about it. What was it like to view that event from a foreign context? Well, you mentioned that you are going to be making a career change and you'll be teaching around these same issues at Georgetown University. And uh, when you are teaching about this now and, and shifting into, uh, into a more domestic context and domestic conversations, what are some of the key points that you'll want to emphasize to American students, uh, maybe those that are training for the Foreign Service or those that just need not simply religious lit- literacy but a kind of international literacy about the issues that you've been dealing with for most of your career? Uh, 
it's it's so easy to provide so many stories to these students and explain why religion matters, like ex- examples of why religion matters and why it's important to be a, a variable to be considered in their their approach to diplomacy. So often we we enter the the world of diplomacy, especially as students, and read books about the great diplomats and and uh, think it's a very hard game sometimes or soft game, but rarely do we consider the role of religious organizations. Until we step back and we look at history, we realize, wow, religion has mattered in all of these aspects, but we just have never really looked at these um, diplomatic challenges with that lens. And so beyond explaining and making clear that religion matters is how to also make sure that we don't only look at conflicts that involve religion as being driven by religion, uh, or that religion is an underlying variable in that, uh, or driver in that. More often than not, there are other drivers that then are co-opted by religious communities or variables to continue the the conflict. So how to not overprivilege religion? Some people might say right-size the the approach to religion and conflicts and other uh, diplomatic needs. We'll be definitely focusing on the policy needs of the administration, which is the role of of diplomats, is to support the policy priorities of of their administration. So going forward, identifying those key policy priorities, whether it's trafficking in persons and combating that, um, or looking at health uh, health concerns that affect prosperity, and and looking at how to involve how to involve religious communities in that. And another thing that I'll definitely be emphasizing is the importance of building capacity beyond our own diplomatic cadre. So we actually, we want to be able to have, be on the same page or at least know where others are coming from on the topic of religion. And having a conversation with the French about religion and diplomacy is very different than having a conversation with the Germans or the Brits or even our own community because of interpretations of secularism. And so we've actually, um, are co-creators of the tra- the Transatlantic Policy Network on Religion and Diplomacy that in- includes 14 different countries, Europe, Canada, the United States, uh, and, and maybe expanding that to other countries on this side of the Atlantic to look at how we approach and train and consider these dynamics on religion and diplomacy. And that way we can speak with a common vocabulary. And we actually have um, just joined to a sister office has just joined that network. The second office that is known to exist on this topic uh, in Germany, the German MFA has created an office focusing on the responsibility and role of religions in combating uh, conflict or addressing conflict and promoting peace. And so this is a, a topic that's going to and continue to increase in focus and capacity and interest. And uh, we will be we will definitely be working on this uh, with other partner countries uh, around the world going forward. So it's an exciting, it's a growth industry, a growth area uh, that will require a new and open-minded group of diplomats, uh, young diplomats as they come in. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that religious organizations are oftentimes international in their footprint. 
And I'm curious because one of the hallmarks of American society is that individual organizations or individual citizens even can involve themselves sometimes in international issues and particularly around issues of religion. And sometimes that's to better or worse effect. And I'm thinking particularly right now of things like missionary efforts abroad and those sorts of things. How how do these individual efforts of organizations or persons affect the work of the Office of Religion and Global Affairs? Uh, the um, yeah, the, the, there is really an, a common perception that religious leaders and groups and uh, communities are really focused primarily on missionary work overseas. However, religious groups really are also at the forefront of initiatives that focus on topics that are of importance for for foreign policy, like sustainable development, um, promoting good governance, women's empowerment, social justice. And I know I've mentioned this a lot, but there are a lot of trafficking um, of religious communities, uh, transnational American communities and and individuals focused on combating trafficking in persons uh, and reintegrating traffic trafficking victims into their communities abroad as well. So just as there are great stories of religious communities and leaders in the United States doing work to bring their communities together domestically, the same happens internationally and their work with working with with sister communities and, and congregations is really uh, highlights this American spirit of, of outreach and efforts to um, to to help abroad. I just have one final question. You have spent your entire life in this sort of diplomatic work, and from listening to you speak about it, I, I can hear that you are excited by it, you are energized by it, and I'm just curious, you know, you have seen probably the best and the worst uh, in a lot of these areas of the world. What is it that keeps you hopeful? You know, it's, I, I have strong faith in human resilience, and I'm very... I've seen this everywhere I've worked, whether it's in Turkey or Pakistan and Nigeria, having been in India during and, and, and seen the good and bad, but, but seeing um, the capacity that every human has and the communities, the resilient communities that we have out there. And uh, that definitely keeps me hopeful uh, and keeps me going. I think we have the capacity to make a difference in ways that are important for U.S. national interests as well as uh, that are often tied to global national interests, just as we were talking about Nigeria's um, efforts to counter corruption. Well, Amy Lillis, I'm fascinated by the work that you do, and I'm so thankful that you took time today to speak to us and to our listeners. Uh, Thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, David. It really was a pleasure. We've been speaking today to Amy Lillis. She's acting United States Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department. She will soon be departing that position for uh, a teaching position at Georgetown University. In 2001, Lillis was a sophomore in college studying abroad in India when the events of 9-11 unfolded. And later, she did a summer internship with the State Department and has spent her career after that college experience as a diplomat, serving as a human rights officer, uh, focusing on Lagos, Nigeria, Istanbul, Turkey, and Islamabad, Pakistan. Her work in the Foreign Service included promoting and protecting religious freedom in places like Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Amy Lillis spoke to us from Washington, D.C. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at the studios of WYLL AM 1160 in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. AM 1160 is not responsible for the content of this program. Debbie Schreiner engineered the show. 
David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you.